by the time you read this letter, I may be dead. I have so much to tell you, and perhaps very little time. Will I ever send it? I don't know. Watching Letter from an Unknown Woman, Max Offel's masterful adaptation of Stefan Zweig's 1922 novella, it initially appears foolhardy to have cast Joan Fontaine, then age 31, as the title character who starts out 13 years old before ageing over 20 years. The reasonable route would have been to have cast different actresses for the different ages. That's what David Fincher did when adapting F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Kate Blanchett portrayed Daisy Fuller as an adult, Madison Beatty played her at 10, and Elle Fanning age 7. You don't, you don't seem like an old person. Like my grandma. I'm not. Are you sick? Well, I heard Mama and Tizzy whisper and they said I was gonna die soon, but maybe not. You're odd. You're different than anybody I've ever met. By the time Fontaine worked with Offals in 1948, she had already starred in Rebecca, won an Oscar for her performance in Hitchcock's Suspicion, and played the title role in Jane Eyre, which carried her from 18 to 29. That stretch was just about credible. But for the constant nymph, Fontaine, then 27, played 14-year-old Tessa Sanger, who, along with her three sisters, is infatuated with a grown man. Sanger said to David, Lewis was like the weather, that if he never really cried, he'd never be really great. What do you think would make him cry? He must have been in love sometime and cried about that. He's never been in love. How do you know? Oh... You may know a lot of things, but you've never known real love any more than we have. How do you know? Why well, know? The things you know that nobody has to tell you about, you just know. When you moon over him, it's enough to turn one's stomach. However problematic the constant nymph still is, it didn't call on Fontaine to age 20 years as she had to in Letter from an Unknown Woman. But that happened because the film was produced through Rampart Productions, a company Fontaine had set up with her then-husband, William Dozier, to develop star vehicles expressly for her. It was Fontaine who chose Zweig's story, because she wanted to make a film for women, and it was she who asked Offals to direct. But for all that, the film was a critical and commercial flop. However, its fortune since has more than reversed, and it is now considered not only to have provided Fontaine with her greatest role, but also to be one of the most profoundly romantic and tragic films ever made. And it is only by re-watching Offal's masterpiece through a romantic lens that Fontaine's playing multiple ages comes to make sense. I think everyone has two birthdays. The day of his physical birth and the beginning of his conscious life. Nothing is vivid or real in my memory. Before that day in spring, when I came home from school and found a moving van in front of our building. Zweig's novella uses the letter as narration and in his adaptation, Screenwriter Howard Koch, who had already won an Oscar for Casablanca, maintained that design. But where Zweig's woman remained unknown, Koch named her Lisa Berndl. Born in Vienna, Lisa first came into contact with Stefan Brandt at 13, by which stage Brandt, played by Louis Jordan, was a budding concert pianist. Instantly enamoured, Lisa would only meet Stefan on a few occasions over the next two decades and yet he impacted fatefully upon her life. For his part, however, Stefan has passed through his own life, scarcely registering who Lisa was. 
But as he reads the letter, he begins to see Lisa's life and how she measured it through her encounters with him, listening to his music and reading about his concerts. But since it is Lisa's letter, it is how Lisa recalls the events that helps us to come to understand why Fontaine played Lisa as a teenager right through to the tragic end. Romance is a lens that distorts reality, and however infatuated the young Lisa was with Stefan, as a dying woman that distortion only deepens. Just as young Lisa idealised Stefan, so too does grown Lisa idealise her former self, and reposition her grown self as a young girl. So, more than just a romantic tragedy, Letter from an Unknown Woman explores the phenomenon of memory. Specifically, how we romanticise the past, transpose, adjust and imprint new meanings onto old events. Not unlike how pianists reinterpret an often played piece later in their careers. In Zweig's story, the man, referred to simply as Orr, is a celebrated novelist. But Offels, who made several films set in Vienna, changes Orr's profession to that of pianist. After all, Vienna had been home to Haydn, Schubert, Mozart, Beethoven, and of course the Strauss dynasty. Besides Mozart, Strauss Sr. and Jr., we also hear compositions from Liszt, Wagner, Juvenita Rosas, and Karl Michael Zierer. With music providing the sonic tapestry, Lisa's memories are filled out with great visual detail. Firstly, through Franz Planner's elegant cinematography, then Travis Banton's sumptuous costumes, and finally, Alexander Golitsyn's superb production design. You sometimes forget that while set in Fantasiec Vienna, the entire film was made on a Hollywood backlot. But while Lisa's narration is detailed, it is also very deceptive. With Lisa as a narrator, we see things through her eyes. And that inverts what Laura Mulvey called the male gaze, a shooting style that prioritised the man's point of view and objectified women. But since we see the story through Lisa's eyes, it is the man, Stefan, who is the object of her gaze. However, that repositioning leads us to another of the film's themes, delusion. As the story develops, there emerges an ever-deepening divide between what Lisa sees and what we understand. While Lisa sees Stefan as a sensitive, talented musician, we understand him as a shallow, narcissistic dilettante. You're even more beautiful than I imagined. Very kind of you. Now, this is just the hour for a little late supper. Or is it too late? Well, it makes no difference. You're here. And as far as I'm concerned, all the clocks in the world have stopped. Excuse me a moment. Once the flashbacks begin, carefully note how Stefan is introduced. At first, Lisa does not see him, and she does not hear him either. Instead, she sees only his books, furniture and piano, being delivered to the apartment upstairs from where she lives with her mother. Lisa has no idea who this man is yet, but already she is constructing for herself an ideal. It is only later, when she hears a melody on the piano, that Lisa imagines a pair of hands, in close-up, playing on the keys. Hands Lisa cannot possibly see, because she is not in the room. Rather, she is on a swing, 
downstairs in the courtyard, listening to the music coming from Stefan's apartment. Lisa looks up at his window, we see the window from her point of view, and another cut puts us inside the apartment, where finally we get to see Stefan's face. In other words, Lisa's memory is constructing images she had not yet seen. It was only later on, after Stefan had gone out, that she snuck in and explored his apartment, where his manuscripts and other personal effects further fueled her imagination. For Lisa, imagination is more powerful than the real world. I never come here in the season. It's more pleasant in the winter, I don't know why. It's perhaps because you prefer to imagine how it will be in the spring. Because if it is spring, then there's nothing to imagine, nothing to wish for. That exchange occurs just before Stefan takes Lisa to the cyclorama. There, they sit in a replica train carriage, while painted landscapes of Venice and the Alps roll by. When my father was alive, we travelled a lot. We went nearly everywhere. We had wonderful times. But even that memory is a transposition because... Well, there weren't any trips. Do you mind? You see... My father had a friend in a travel bureau. My father worked across the street. He was an assistant superintendent of the municipal waterworks. And he used to bring folders home with him, with pictures in them. We have stacks of them. And uh, in the evening, he'd put on his traveling coat. That's what he called it. Uh, of course, I was very young. And he would say, where should we go this evening? And I would say, um, Veracruz, because it's a beautiful name. All that is evident by looking at the story, by which I mean reading the letter from Lisa's point of view. However, when we consider the events from Stefan's perspective, another theme emerges. While always shallow, at least in his youth, Stefan's talent suggested he had a future. But where once considered a prodigy, by the time he meets Lisa in her early 20s, his future is now firmly behind him. And the reason for Stefan's failure as a musician is hinted at during his first evening with Lisa. Sometimes I felt when you were playing that... Go on. That you haven't quite found, I don't know what it is, what you're looking for. How long have you been hiding in my piano? I never mind explaining. I just assume you're a sorceress and that you can make yourself very tiny. <laughs> it might be a good thing to have a sorceress for a friend. Who knows? You may be able to help me someday. Lisa is the muse Stefan never had. She understands his music the way he doesn't. And his failure to recognise her as such, indeed recognise her at all, is emblematic of his failure as an artist. Where Lisa was magnetised by Stefan's music, Stefan's attraction to beauty was neither emotional nor cerebral, but simply carnal. Gravitating to whatever woman was before him at any given moment meant that he never focused on music's deeper value a deeper value that could have made him a great pianist. In that way, Letter from an Unknown Woman also addresses the meaning of art. Well, the truth is, I've had rather an easy time of it. People accepted my music very quickly. Perhaps too quickly. Sometimes it's easier to please others than oneself. It is only at the very end when Stefan realises who Lisa was that he breaks down and weeps not only for her, but for what he failed to fulfil as an artist. Such fatal catharsis reminds me of Federica Fellini's La Strada. There is no evidence that Fellini was influenced by Offal's film. Yet, at the time, Il Maestro was moving away from the neorealist tradition, 
and there is nonetheless a striking similarity between the films. La Strada centres on a young woman, Gelsimina, played by Giulietta Messina, who is naively devoted to circus performer strongman Zampano. In return, Zampano, played by Anthony Quinn, takes Gelsimina for granted and abuses her dreadfully. Eventually, she leaves him, but Zampano continues on his brutish path, that is, until the evening he learns that Gelsimina has died. And in the cold night of the seashore, he falls to his knees in despair, and through her death, finally realises just how badly he has lived his life. Here is how Zweig ends his story. He shuddered, feeling as if an invisible door had suddenly opened, a door through which a chill breeze from another world was blowing into his sheltered room. An intimation of death came to him, and an intimation of deathless love. Something welled up within him, and the thought of the dead woman stirred in his mind, bodiless and passionate, like the sound of distant music. A year after the film was released, Offals directed two noir thrillers, Caught and The Reckless Moment, both starring James Mason. Mason was so taken by Offal's unique style of filmmaking that he composed a stanza. A shot that does not call for tracks is agony for dear old Max, who, separated from his dolly, is wrapped in deepest melancholy. Once when they took away his crane, I thought he'd never smile again. Mason would later star in Stanley Kubrick's unsatisfactory adaptation of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, where Offal's influence on Kubrick is more than obvious. From Colonel Dax inspecting the troops in Paths of Glory, and Alex Delarge stalking the shopping arcade in La Clockwork Orange, to Gunnery Sergeant Hartman striding through the barracks in full metal jacket, and Dr. Bill Hartford exploring the quasi-religious orgy in Eyes Wide Shut, echoes of Offal's camera movements are legion. But if you look more closely, you can see that Offal's influence went beyond mere camera movement. Kubrick transposed the essence of an entire scene into a sequence for what I hold as his greatest film. Late in Letter from an Unknown Woman, Lisa and her husband Johann, played by Marcel Jeunet, go to Vienna's opera house where Mozart's The Magic Flute is being performed. As Lisa ascends the staircase to the mezzanine, she overhears a group pointing out that Stefan Brandt is in attendance. Looking back down into the foyer, Lisa once more sees her beloved. The curtain is cold and Lisa hurries to take her seat in a loge with her husband. But she spots Stefan and once more is unable to help herself. She gazes upon him and, becoming distracted, she steps out into the corridor and then lingers outside in the portico of the opera house. Stefan emerges. Excuse me. You must realize where there is a pursued, there must also be a pursuer. It is just like the hypnotic sequence in Barry Lyndon, where Barry is at an evening salon dealing cards. On the opposite side of the green bays sits Lady Lyndon. She and Barry exchange lingering glances. She turns to Reverend Runt. Samuel, I'm going outside for a breath of air. In the cool air of the moonlight, Barry soon follows. There is no corresponding event anywhere in Thackeray's picaresque novel. So perhaps Kubrick used the brief tryst in Offal's film as inspiration. Just as Letter from an Unknown Woman ends, with Stefan heading off to his fateful duel with Lisa's husband, Kubrick's adaptation pivots around similarly grave confrontations. Lord Bullingdon, 
Cock your pistol and get ready to fire. Although Letter from an Unknown Woman is told by Lisa through her words, Offal's subtle direction means that his heroine occupies a space of incredible tension, if not contradiction. Her name is Lisa, yet she is the Unknown Woman. With Lisa as our narrator, we spend our time listening to her voice, while she spends her life listening to Stefan's music. We always see Lisa, but Stefan doesn't. And she is dead, but forever alive, bodiless and passionate, like the sound of distant music. <laughs> 